I'm James Milley. And I'm Alex Mito. And this is The Artist Business Plan. Your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs hosted by Superfine Art Fair. Hello, business artists. You're listening to The Artist Business Plan, which means you're certifiably awesome. I'm James Milley, co-founder of Superfine Art Fair. We're the most widespread art fair for independent artists in the U.S. and one of the top resources for all things related to building your very own thriving art business. Today, we've got Greg Lefebvre here with us. Greg is going to talk about his work in public commissions and his compel. <laughs> Greg is going to talk about his work in public commissions and his compulsive storytelling nature. I'm very excited to hear what he has to say, but first, I've got an amazing offer here just for you AVP listeners. New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and yes, Miami. These are just a few of the places where you and your art can meet your next collector when you sign up and exhibit with us at Superfine Art Fair. Join the number one art fair for independent artists as we travel across the United States reaching thousands of qualified in-person art buyers at every single fair. And prepare yourself for success with a full suite of business resources like our very own podcast, which you're listening to right now. Superfine started with the connection between artists and an eager, empowered, qualified buying audience. So many alternatives didn't provide any real value for the artists who spent their precious time, hard-earned money, and major effort mounting and exhibiting their work without the results to back it up. And that meant it was time for something new. For seven years, Superfine has focused on breaking down these barriers and creating sustainable economic opportunities for artists to build careers from our fair. To find your place at a Superfine fair, simply visit www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art. Don't miss the chance to be a part of the top business artist community in the world. And when you mention the artist business plan, you'll receive a $150 credit on your booth, no matter what size or city you choose. So that's $150 off. Just go online to www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art to set up your qualification call with James and get started selling your art with Superfine today. Again, that's www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art. All right, so we are back here with Greg Lefebvre. Greg Lefebvre is a longtime New Yorker with a passion for storytelling. Through writing, art, and conversations with friends and strangers, he has always practiced the art of a good story. In his public art commissions, he has found ways to celebrate the collective stories of others, as well as sharing the personal stories he has lived. Greg's public art career has been prolific. He has completed over 200 permanently installed projects, many in the U.S. with a dozen in his home of Manhattan. Library Walk at 5th and 41st is the largest work of public art in NYC. His public art is all about exploring the history or character of the places where it is installed. Greg has a particular interest in telling the lost and forgotten stories from people and cultures that have otherwise been excluded from the national narrative. Greg's experiences in and around the world of art inspired him to create his podcast, The Compulsive Storyteller, where short personal stories prove the adage that truth can be stranger than fiction. Welcome to the Artist Business Plan, Greg. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, it's great to have you here as well. Uh, now, before we get started, Greg, I just want to ask you something. I ask all of our guests when they come on to help our listeners get to know you. What is the earliest memory that you have of art? So it's a sort of a bittersweet memory. 
I went to a very small public school. It was kindergarten through second grade. And my first grade teacher thought I had some artistic talent. So she set up a little studio in the back of the classroom for me. And I, I was able to paint while the other kids were doing, you know, math and arithmetic and science and learning everything. And the problem, with the, that was the good part of the story. It made me feel wonderful to be recognized as an artist at such a young age, and my parents were very proud of me. But then I got behind in reading, writing, and arithmetic, as they say, and I was behind for the next six or seven years. So it was probably not the best way to start, but it's also probably why I'm an artist today. That makes total sense to me. Um, and you know what? Even uh, even if it had that that struggle attached to it, uh, like you said, it, it, it has made you what you are and who you are today. Uh, so I, I think it's it's worth celebrating still, even if it, uh, you know, got you behind in reading, writing, uh, arithmetic. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Greg. Um, so let's go ahead and dive into the rest of the questions we have for you. So first off, so for years, you have spent time investing in and being trusted with public art. How did you get started, and did you have prior experience with bronze work? Sure. So firstly, I never went to art school. I studied philosophy. So I didn't have a formal art education. Um, and I got started with my art career by mistake, actually. I was, after I graduated from college, I was living in an old mansion near the Boston University campus, and I started a little studio for myself and was making these small sculptures. And I was never a sculptor. I just started making sculpture. That was my beginning, first time I'd done it. And they were little tiny five, six, eight inch tall sculptures in styrofoam and foam core and various materials. And I saw a ad in the campus newspaper that the, they were going to have a competition for a park design for the campus. So, and, and uh, anybody could join, anybody could apply. So I applied for the competition, sent in my information, and then spent, and it was going to be an eight-week due date. And I started making dozens and dozens and dozens of small uh, sculptures. And I also started doing these, uh, did a design for my park, which I was not exactly an inspired design. I had a square, it was a square plot. So I had a square park with a perimeter sidewalk all around it. And then there was an, sort of an X, from, sidewalks went from corner to corner. And in the middle would be my monumental size sculpture, even though the largest thing I'd made was 10 inches tall. And um, when it came time to deliver my model, I went to the, it was the vice president's office, very ornate, beautiful Beaux-Arts building, went inside to deliver it, and the woman behind the desk said, oh, I'm sorry, that, no, we canceled that. Nobody, nobody um, applied. And I said, what? I said, I applied. You've had, my, you've, had my, you've had my application, and no one called me. And I've been busting my ass for the last eight weeks. And I, and I, I used a little profanity, and she told me there was no need for that kind of language. <laughs> and at that point, the Boston University campus police showed up because I think she'd pushed a button someplace. And then the vice president of the university came out from his office. And he was a, at first a little put off, but then he was a charming guy. And he said, you know what? Why don't you bring your model back in my office and let's talk about it? And um, the rest of the story is, is pretty involved, but it was a fascinating story. And it's actually on my podcast. It's called My First Public Art Disaster. And the final result of it was that between two of the major buildings on campus, they were designed by a French architect named Jose Louis Serre. I have this monumental sculpture. Um, 
and it's still there 40, 42 years later, excuse me, 42 years later. So. Wow. No, I, I, I love how it just sort of fell into your lap. This, you know, you, you happen to be making a uh, sculpture and, and then you had this, this opportunity that kind of got you started. I'd, I'd love to, to listen to the full story uh, on your podcast. And I, I encourage everyone else listening to do the same. Um, but, but that's, that's such a, 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 a um, an interesting beginning to the the story. And in terms and, of your quite, in terms of your question about bronze, um, so I also was a member of a sculptors collective called the Sculptors Workshop, and one of my studio mates had a bronze foundry. So he basically and thankfully taught me the art of casting bronze, which you know has served me well over the years. So. Fantastic, um, and. Talking about the uh, the commissioned public art world, um, mm-hmm. what would you say are the benefits of working in that sphere, and how do you personally how how do you win commissions um, yep. from your experience? Sure. Um, so I had a gallery career when I was young. Um, I mean, I did get I did get public commissions, but I was also selling my work through galleries and. And I got a very good gallery in Boston, and they sold a lot of my pieces to pretty serious collectors. But what I discovered was that my work ended up often in a, in a secure art storage facility or a vault, and that's not really what I wanted to do. I wanted to share my stories and my ideas and my work with a much broader cross-section of people. So that sort of led me to, to go after public art. Um, where, where more people could appreciate it instead of exactly. it just... Exactly. You know, exactly. Being being in a in a very private space that is then privately purchased. <laughs> um, exactly. So yeah, there's, and the yeah. ben- an obvious benefit benefit of having your work in public is that it gives you a lot of um, I call it street cred when it comes to being an artist. If you if you have a, a piece that everybody can see, it's almost like a permanent advertisement for you as an artist. And if your work is just sitting in your studio, um, that's not not the same. So, so that's that's that. So, yeah, no, no, I think, you know, honestly, for, for artists listening, just depending on what, uh, what work you create, if it makes sense for you to consider public art installations for that very reason, um, that it is kind of this permanent billboard for your work that, you know, either, you know, you're, you're being paid for, or you are, um, you know, uh, whatever the, the, the arrangement might be, you know, there's Mm -hmm. definitely that long-term benefit of it, uh, giving you that credibility. Right. So I have some, I have some advice for about how the whole process works. And then I have some advice for artists who are trying to break into the process. Um, so most states and the federal government and lots of cities have what they call percent for art programs, where if there's any new construction, a certain percentage of the new construction budget has to go for art. Usually it's a half a percent or a percent which doesn't sound like much, but if the state of New York is doing a $100 million building, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of money to be spent on art. So they, they start out by sending out what's called an RFP, or Request for Proposal. And these are listed in many, many places. There's an online um, service called Cafe. There's another one called Arts Calendar. And, and also most state arts councils have newsletters. And they list all the available commissions. And my, my, my advice to other artists is if a, if a committee that's choosing an artist wants more than wants to have more than three finalists, sometimes they want six, seven, eight finalists 
don't don't apply because I've learned that for some reason committees that that want a large number of finalists never make up their mind, and, the, and ultimately the commission never happens. So, um, in terms of breaking into the art world, um, it's hard, but I think there's ways that that painters and photographers can break in, and and that is this: there's there's a number of techniques now available, new techniques where you can translate a painting or a photograph into a in, in some cases, uh, a glazed ceramic on metal piece, or there's a, there's a, a number of different techniques they use. But what you ha- what you end up with is you're painting in another material, let's say ceramic on metal, and now it's durable. It can be put outdoors. It lasts for a long time. So you can then enter a, a, a competition um, and possibly succeed. Um, so in, in um. You can also have your work laser cut. I forgot that one. So laser cutting and then painting on ceramic or metal. Um, I think those are really good tips to, you know, let's say you 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 think that your art might not be the right medium for for uh, public art. It it might actually be. <laughs> you you might you might still want to uh, consider doing this. Exactly, and what what I didn't explain it correctly. What they the process is they they have a glazed surface and they project your painting exactly as it is onto that and then it's baked so it looks exactly like you're painting but in fact it's it's glazed metal so you're not you're the artist isn't really painting on the metal which also can be done um for sure but it's slightly different than that um so if yeah. you if you if you're lucky enough to get considered by a committee um i have a few thoughts about that too and one is um you want to you want to memorize the request for proposals because there's a lot of information in it, and you want to have that completely at your fingertips before you present. And secondly, most large committees these days they have a check sheet, and if if in the in the request for proposals they have a bunch of things they want the work to speak to, and I think sometimes it's it's absurd they want a piece that that speaks to um, Black history and um, gay sensibilities and Native Americans and uh, the environmental crisis. That's kind of crazy, but but you do get proposals like that. And if you, in your presentation, touch on every one of the things they've requested, then they're checking off boxes on a list. And you can end up becoming the first, end up winning the competition because you have unwittingly um, or wittingly in this case, done exactly what you're supposed to do, checked every box and, and covered every subject that they want to have in this sculpture. Does, that's does that exactly make sense? Yeah. It does. It does. No, it definitely makes sense. Uh, that's something I, I mention a lot uh, with the hiring process, right? If you're looking um, to be accepted as the candidate for a job, mm-hmm. uh, you know, first things first, if they mention something in that job description, they're asking for a cover letter in addition to your resume. Right, they, right. You know, if, if they're asking for something, make sure that you're reading the directions because, you know, you might have an, an amazing, um, you know, resume and you, you might be a really great uh, fit for the job. But if you, if you miss the first thing that they're asking for, that's going to be a red flag in their mind. And so the yes. same thing with, uh, you know, a request for a proposal, if they are looking for certain specifications and you aren't meeting those because uh, you didn't make sure that that your your proposal includes everything they're asking for, 
uh, even if it's a great proposal, you might not be put at the top of the list just because uh, it, it doesn't meet all the requirements. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. yeah. No, really, really good advice there. Um, and also what you were mentioning before about just knowing that every state has uh, the the percent that they dedicate to art programs, uh, that that can be really empowering because then you know that you can you can go look for those and, and they have an obligation to uh, fulfill that commission. So um, so it definitely gives you um, kind of a leg up just knowing that that they do need to spend money on someone like you. Yes. <laughs> so exactly. Um, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, so my next question. So you've had the opportunity to, uh, to put works in public spaces all over the place. What are some of the things that you have come to expect uh, when traveling for commissions? Um, bunch of things. I'm gonna I'm gonna start out with when you put work in the public arena. Um, you're also entering the political arena, and that's a very rough and tumble world. So any artist who's who's going to do public art um, needs to be tough. Um, in, in the political world, if you're, you can be a sensitive spiritual soul, but if you if your feelings get hurt, they're going to be hurt all the time. And so you need to have um, you need to have the right attitude, and that is to just you know, put your ego aside and be thankful that you've been chosen and um, don't worry about the insults, but they will come. Um, for example, on my library walk piece, um, I, it turned out that when I had, when I had um, designed the piece and it's a hundred bronze panels running for two blocks in the sidewalk by the library, when I had designed it, um, the New York arts commission gave me an award for design and mayor Giuliani um, had to give, had the, give me the award in City Hall. But Mayor Giuliani was totally opposed to the project because it was going to make another politician look good. So as soon as I finished the project, he did everything he could to scuttle the project. And it was a real battle to, to get it finally installed and unveiled. And um, that's also, there's a, there's a, in my podcast, I have an episode called Giuliani, which tells that whole story. And it was a brutal experience for me. And in terms of traveling for commissions, um, as I said, I've won lots of commissions. And the way the process goes is you win the commission, they approve your design, they give you a down payment, you go back to your studio and you work for however long, quite often it's as much as a year. And then you you box your, your work and then you ship it to the site. Now, meanwhile, the client has had a contractor and a landscape architect prepare the site for the installation of the sculpture. In my experience, and I've had this happen a couple hundred times, maybe five of those contractors were ready when I arrived. So I had to come up with a whole technique for having, a, a, I would get a, let's say it's Salt Lake City, I would get a local photographer or a local landscape architect to, to check in once a week and see the progress that the contractor was making. Because on the phone, he would tell me it's done when it's not done. And so I had to do this extra work just to make sure that when I arrived, we didn't have to sit in a motel room for a week while the contractors finished, the, you know, their part of the project. So something to be aware of and wary of. So the thing I've also found is that contractors don't like or respect artists. In my experience, I, I can't say all contractors, but I was doing a, a commission for a really big contracting firm in New York, um, and 
they hadn't paid me my, I was supposed to get an original down payment when I signed the contract. It never happened. They had all kinds of excuses, but I had to start the project because there was an end date when the park was going to be finished and the mayor was going to speak and it was going to be an unveiling. And so I, like a fool, started when I had no money in hand. And it came time when the project was done and I had, it was all finished. I still hadn't received a nickel. And I, I went to the construction trailer of the construction company for a meeting. And I, they said, what are you doing here, Lefebvre? You know? I said, well, I, I have an announcement to make. And they go, oh, Lefebvre's got an announcement. So I said, look, I haven't received a nickel and I can't deliver my work until I get full payment, a check for full payment. So one of the guys actually threw a book at me. And they, you know, they, they said, you were not going to let a little pissant artist slow down a $20 million project. And I actually, I actually fled the, the, the construction trailer because I thought I was going to be violently, you know, uh, apprehended. So oh the next God. day, though, it has a good ending. So the next day, um, there's a buzz at my, buzz, my buzzer rings. And this, you know, worker, he's a, a common laborer, I think they call him, he had a hard hat in his vest. And he, he said, I can't believe I have to do this. But he got on his knees and held up his hands and he had an envelope, which had a cashier's check for the whole final amount due. And uh, so they were just messing with me. They were just <laughs> just giving me a hard time for the hell of oh it. My, so. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, definitely things to, to keep in mind uh, as far as, you know, having to, to, uh, travel for commissions and, uh, you know, it's, it's very outside of what is, uh, typically part of the, um, you know, having your own art business when you're, you're making art that, you know, is an individual piece to be sold, you know, right, public exactly. art, these are, these are whole new variables that you have to be prepared for. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it does sound like there's a lot of benefit to it as well. Um, so my next question. So oftentimes people forget that a public commission can take years to complete. Uh, and it, it, you know, as you're talking, you can kind of realize that. So what can change in the interim and what should an artist be prepared for when committing to something in the long term? Good question. Um, so I'm going to give two examples. I was commissioned to do a uh, a piece for Montgomery, Alabama. It was going to be a typical one of my inset bronze pieces, which is going to tell the history of Alabama. But it was going to tell, I was going to include the black history of Alabama and the Native American history and the natural history. And immediately it was a political football. And there was a lot of debate. And, and meanwhile, I had made it. Uh, I had delivered it. But for a 10-year period, it, it didn't go in the ground. And then finally, they just put it away and it never happened, um, which was, you know, pretty disappointing with having spent 10 years on it. Um, another one, uh, the Fort, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, has a, a, a very active public art um, commission. And they commissioned me to do something for the Pompano Beach Library, which is part of their purview. And that also took a decade. And in that case, there was a fight about who owned the land the library was going to go on, so they had to get a different piece of land. Um, and then there were personnel changes in, in the people who I was dealing with. Um, as I said, the location changed. And then they were, the worst thing of all is, as an artist, my aesthetic and my ideas about what I wanted to do changed. And now I had to do what I promised to do 10 years before, which I was not interested in. So, But I did learn one lesson, that you can, you can convince a committee to approve the change of design once, but they will never approve it twice. 
So basically, you know, you get one shot to change your mind and that's it. Um, yeah, no, that, that that's definitely something to keep in mind is just that, you know, if it's something that's going to take years, you know, it, the, the factors of where you are uh, bringing the commission, uh, the public art piece to, they might have something going on, or it might, it might just be that you as, as an artist, you have evolved over those 10 years or, or, or exactly. however long it is. And, you know, you really need to keep that in mind. Uh, I think that's a good pro tip that, <laughs> you know, uh, request a change to it once and, and, uh, and, and then kind of commit to that, that new idea, uh, at that point. So I, I think that's, a, that's a good workaround. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. So. All right. So we are going to come right back and Greg is going to tell you more about his compulsive storytelling, but first another message from our sponsors. Artist, not sure about the next move in your career? Whether you're a talented emerging artist or a nine to five career artist looking for an upgrade, Superfine Art Fair is the boost you've been waiting for. Showcasing top quality work with the highest level of production in the industry, Superfine has been continually developed over the past seven years to become the number one art fair for independent artists in the United States. If you want to make lifelong connections with collectors, if you're willing to learn new methods of marketing, and if you're able to make a plan and execute on it, then you're going to fit right in with our business artist community. From the east to the west, there are plenty of opportunities to expand your arts career with Superfine. To apply for a Superfine art fair near you, visit www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art. Mention the artist business plan during your qualification call and we'll take an additional $150 off of your booth fee for any city and any fair that you choose. We can't wait to welcome you to the Superfine community and start helping you sell more art today. All right, so so Greg, let's pivot now and talk about handling collectors. Can you explain the ideas behind catching and pitching with collectors, what that means and why it's important to know? Sure. Um, firstly, I think there's many different levels of collectors. There's the, you know, there's a local collector who might come to a, um, an art fair and buy something. And he has one kind of sensibility, but then there are regional collectors and then there are world sort of world-class collectors who are recognized internationally. And they have a very different, they have a very different way of behaving. And in my experiences, local collectors are very happy to hear an artist's ideas about his work and, and all about his technique. And, and they're fine with that. Uh, the world-class collector doesn't care. He's, he or she is usually a very wealthy person or a very successful person. And they want to talk about their ideas, their collection. And they don't want to hear about my, my ideas about my art. So it's sort of a different approach to different kinds of collectors. Um, in terms of, of catching and pitching, um, I think that pitching is good. You should pitch somebody, but you also should do, I'm using your word catching in a different context. You also need to catch. You need to find out about the potential collectors, his collection, his family, her family, their background, all those different things in, in, in sort of making a relationship with them, which makes them much more likely to buy your work. Does that make sense? Right. It, yes, it, it does make sense. And, you know, I think that that's, that's a really interesting uh, an interesting point to make, right? Because 
for instance, with Superfine, our art fair, uh, we, we survey visitors after they come to the show. We ask what their favorite part of the fair was. And mm-hmm. their favorite part was getting to meet the artist directly and hear about their story. So you're absolutely right. Um, versus, you know, someone who is more of this world-class collector and, you know, they are, they're, they're, they're allowing you to, so to speak, um, be a part of their collection, which is this representation of, of their perception or their, their impression of the world. Exactly. So, you know, definitely kind of switching it around and you as an artist, if, if you are approaching or, uh, or seeking out larger collectors like this you know, think of it as, you know, your favorite aspect of selling your art is getting to meet the collector um, and and know about them uh, and really focus on, on you know, their story. <laughs> I think that's, that's a, a very, very interesting uh, note to take. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, something that I think we've all gotten a nice little taste of here on the podcast. So, what is it about stories and jokes that captures your attention and forces you to create the art that you make? And can you also speak about the message of your podcast, The Compulsive Storyteller? Sure. So I come from a three-generation family of storytellers. Um, and at the holidays and at dinner, we always competed with telling stories. And what's interesting about storytellers is that and this is true of all of us that when 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 we worked our day uh, finished our day of work and came home we would tell if there was some event during the day we would tell a story about that event we would tell the story a half a dozen times so it became fixed in our memory and that's sort of a storyteller that's what makes a storyteller a storyteller and most people they 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 spend the day doing something they come home they might tell their partner about this interesting thing that happened but then it's forgotten and it's and once it's a week or two has gone by, it's completely forgotten. So my entire family has this huge repertoire of stories, which we can compete with in a way. And sometimes we we have a third party name a subject, and we each tell a story about that subject, which we can recall from from way back. Um, and in a way, if you look at the history of, of mankind, um, all of all of history was was basically passed from generation to generation through storytelling. And I think that's sort of what happened in, in my family. Um, so my storytelling is compulsive in that sometimes I cannot help myself. Um, I can give you two quick examples. I was, I met with a director of the Guggenheim Museum. And this is a guy who has amazing stories from all over the world. And what did I do? I was nervous. So I started telling my stories. And within three minutes, his eyes glazed over and I was finished. It wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to get anywhere with him. I did the same thing with a major art book publisher. And I realized that I have a problem. I, when I'm nervous, I can't control my storytelling. So I actually went to a shrink. Um, and he advised me, you know, one way you might get control over your storytelling is to make a podcast. And maybe if you externalize your stories into a podcast, you then wouldn't be as compul- as compul- be, have to compulsively tell them. So that's what I did. And that's how my podcast came about. And the, the interesting thing, I think, for your listeners about my podcast, The Compulsive Storyteller, is that I have a lot of stories about the art world, about commissions, 
about gallery shows, about wacko artists I've dealt with. I also was involved in the starting of a big art community in Boston where a thousand different artists over the years passed through. So all of those make for good stories that I think your listeners would enjoy. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, you know, even if uh, it's sometimes, you know, attached to uh, anxiety or, or being nervous, right? Uh, I, I think that the history behind uh, your storytelling uh, with competing with your family and, and kind of making it part of the history of yourself and your family instead of, like you said, just uh, something that might seem mundane in the moment, you you just let get lost. You know, oh, okay. something happened today, I tell my partner, and then it just, it just gets lost in the ether. I, I never think of it again. Uh, it actually becomes an important part of you. And I, you know, I think that makes your memories a lot richer. Um, so I, I actually really admire you for that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, all right, Greg, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, let's go ahead and bring it home for our listeners. What would you say is your number one tip for artists who are just getting started? So I actually have a few tips. Um, number one is don't take rejection personally. You can be rejected for a dozen different reasons that have nothing to do with you or your art. Um, secondly, um, well, this is actually the same idea, but w w when I was young, I got a, a million rejection letters because in those days it was snail mail rejection. And I ultimately made a big pile out of them. And my plan was to paper my bathroom with them when I became a successful artist. So I felt good about a rejection letter when it arrived. Um, and secondly, um, Apply to everything. Go after everything. You can always decide not not to take part, but there are many, many, many opportunities. And sometimes I don't even look that inviting. But when you get involved, it turns into something else, which is which is definitely worthwhile. Um, and lastly, um, I think an artist, and, and this is kind of onerous, an onerous job for most artists who are spiritual and sensitive beings, but you should do some research on selling, how to sell and how to close a deal. And there's lots of books about it. And I would highly recommend that, that even though it's not exactly what you want to be doing, it's going to help you in your career and help you make a living so you can do what you want to do. And that's, that's my I, advice. I, I think those are, are wonderful words of wisdom. Uh, I have a, a little, uh, fun side story as well actually for super fine we uh we had a similar idea uh early on uh when we were first starting uh the fair and it was a an art fair that was focused on you know artists selling their work instead of galleries selling their work we got a lot of rejection and skeptical emails back from uh people in the art world uh publications galleries of course, yeah. And, and we actually talked about doing the same thing, making a wallpaper out of all of these emails uh, yeah. that was was put together and, you know, put in a bathroom or something like that. So um, I I definitely hear you there. And it definitely turned it into like, ooh, this this scathing email will make an excellent addition to the wallpaper. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, Greg, thank you so much for your time. Uh, everyone listening um, you can listen to this episode and all of our past podcasts on our website at superfine.world. Uh, to connect with Greg, you can follow his Instagram page at Greg underscore Lefebvre. 
Uh, that's G-R-E-G-G underscore L-E-F-E-V-R-E. And you can also listen to The Compulsive Storyteller at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Be sure to check us out at Superfine Art Fair on Instagram. We always appreciate a share whenever you're listening to and enjoying the artist business plan. Also, uh, we'd love it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts when you have the chance. That is how other artists find out about the show, and it's very critical in helping, uh, you know, other artists, uh, you know, further their own business, uh, art businesses. As always, I'd like to wrap up by sharing a quick quote with you all. Uh, today's quote is by Stormy Bailey. Painting is a way of communicating vision and experience so that it reaches beyond a single moment in time. What fills our hearts and spills over must be shared. Greg, once again, it's been such a pleasure having you here with us today. And thank you again for sharing your perspective with our listeners. Great. Thank you, too. And it was a, it was a very interesting uh, hearing your questions and responding to them, James. So. Absolutely. And and I, I, I've loved uh, getting just a little taste of, uh, of your storytelling. <laughs> thank you. Great. Uh, everyone else, have an awesome rest of your day. And remember to stay on top of your artist business plan, get out there, and make it happen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Artist Business Plan. Hosted by me, Alex Mito. And me, James Milley. Join us each week to hear leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas discuss tips and tricks designed to help you thrive and sell more art. To listen to this episode and all of our past episodes, just visit www.superfine.world and click The Artist Business Plan. And we love to hear what you have to say, so just follow us on Instagram at superfineartfair and shoot us a message just to let us know you're listening. Want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Go to www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art. Until next time, keep listening, keep creating, and keep up your artist business plan. Mm -hmm.